You're listening to episode 33 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the stories of Mr. Miracle, Oberon, Fire, and Ice. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and for the next three episodes, you might as well consider this show a spin-off of Justice League International Blaha Podcast. My first guest in this endeavor was the co-host of the Ultraverse Podcast, Prime of Your Life. Please welcome David Gutierrez. How are you, David? I'm fine, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I am good. I'm good. So, Ultraverse... Yeah, what about it? It ended like the show ended, sort of. <laughs> is, it Shag's, is it Shag's fault? <laughs> like everything, yes. No, it was really, um, it was, it was, it was really uh, just demands on our time. What, one thing, I, I guess everybody knows Shag is a Floridian, and so, um, and I'm, in, I'm a West Coast based, so it's very hard to get our schedules together. And uh, he's often travel. well, he calls it traveling. I, I think most people just call it on the lam, so he's always out of town. And... Um, Oh, he's not always out of time. But it's very hard to get our schedules to line up, and it just sort of fizzled out. And I guess so did the sister podcast on the on the Ultraverse Network, appropriately enough, also sort of fizzled out. We were bought by Marvel, and um, we really can't talk about the deal. I understand. But, uh, I understand. No, no but uh, you know, if anybody wants to listen, Shag is is still is still paying to keep them up. So please listen. All right, well, uh, let's move on to what this show is about. If any of the dedicated Ultraverse podcast fans are checking this show out for the first time, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Nine consecutive stories over the next three issues spotlight men and women, and whatever the hell Nort is, from Justice League International. And our lead-off hitter is the super escape artist from the fourth world, Mr. Miracle. So David, how did you discover Mr. Miracle? I think it was through Justice League? The Giffen mm-hmm. series with the. I'm trying to remember why I hadn't, because I feel like he was such. Miracle's been such a mainstay of, of the DC universe, probably the most well known of the new gods, yeah. unless I'm forgetting somebody else. But uh, yeah, it, it was a JLI. I guess it was the first issue of JLI, right? And that's kind of. And I, I don't know. I just thought this guy's just fun. I mean, you look at him, 
he's he's having he's enjoying himself. And I think Maguire's art had a lot to do with it, just to make him look just like an appealing person. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. more so than just a character. But Scott Free was interesting to me. I want to say that was probably the first time I recognized him or thought about it. I think the first time I heard about the character was oh, superpowers, the Duh, superpowers toy, yeah, 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 yeah. There was an action figure of him, but not really knowing the comics at the time. I think I probably assumed like he looked so weird that he probably wasn't a comic book character. He was probably <laughs> he was probably like Cyclotron or Samurai, just an right. invention for the series. I was like, this yeah, guy looks ridiculous. He couldn't possibly be. It's it's weird because he's one of those guys like uh, like I know you guys. I don't know, is it your show or Shag's where they often talk about um, – Shag and Rob's show. Sorry, Rob. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the uh, George Pettis sometimes draws things that only he can draw mm-hmm. and the costumes look ridiculous in somebody else. I think it's kind of the case with yeah. uh, with, with Mr. Miracle where uh, there's a ridiculousness <laughs> to him that uh, – yeah, only some people can can uh, can can pull off. And certainly, I I do remember the superpowers figure, and I don't remember how I if I knew who he was or not. But he was just, I guess, because of his feature, he had a giant chest, yeah. right? And um, he looked a little ridiculous. Plus, it was the it was toward the part in my life where I stopped buying toys, mm-hmm. and um, or I was supposed to stop buying toys. <laughs> and that uh, is an important distinction. <laughs> the uh, give the appearance of not buying them. So I never picked him up. I could, I got Captain Marvel instead. I remember I could have gotten him, Captain Marvel, or Cyborg, and I and I picked up Captain Marvel. I think a lot of people would say you made the right choice. But had I made the Cyborg choice and kept him in the box, I think I'd, I'd be a little richer today. Yeah, important, like upcoming movie star, Cyborg. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, after the toy, I think it was probably the same thing. I think the, the Justice League, just before it became Justice League International... Who is this guy? Like, I, why does he look like that? Is that a luchador mask, or is it actually, <laughs> or is his skin yeah. painted that way? And I just had no idea. But yeah, it was the same thing. Like, the more I read, he was really one of those standout characters in that series that I just I liked everything about him. He was just a fun right. guy to watch. Yeah, I fell in love with him in one of my favorite comics of all time, Moving Day, mm-hmm. where he's in the embassy that the JLI is building, and he zaps the. Um, their security system. No, no, Captain Marvel zaps their yeah. security system. I'm sorry. And Mr. Miracle has, has like a breakdown over it. God, that was such a good series. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Look for that on Justice League International, the Bwahaha podcast. Hosted the by series Shag and others. is better than the show is letting you believe, people. <laughs> well, uh, I've got his publication history. In 1970, after a decade at Marvel Comics where he co-created the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, and the X-Men... Jack Kirby came to DC Comics. He took over writing and illustrating Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen and created three additional titles, the four of which combined to form an epic saga of new gods, monsters, heroes, and villains. One of the chief players in this saga, known as the Fourth World, was Scott Free, the super escape artist who debuted in the first issue of Mr. Miracle, published in March of 1971. The Mr. Miracle series ran for 18 issues, folding in 1973, probably as a result of the infamous DC implosion. After that, Mr. Miracle popped up in three issues of The Brave and the Bold and in DC Comics Presents issue 12. In 1977, DC resurrected the Fourth World titles without Jack Kirby, and Mr. Miracle's book continued until issue 25. After that, he and the rest of the New Gods appeared in Justice League of America issues 183 through 185. 
After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Scott starred in a one-shot Mr. Miracle special that re-established his origins on Apocalypse and his career as a circus performer married to Big Barda here on Earth. He was one of the first recruits of the new team in Justice League Issue 1, which became Justice League International. As part of the team, he made numerous appearances throughout the late 1980s in various other comics. In 1989, a new Mr. Miracle series began. This one lasted 28 issues, finally ending in 1991. He got a miniseries in 1996 and appeared in Fourth World-inspired series in the 90s like Orion and New Gods. After that, I'm not really sure. I never read any Death of the New God stories, but I know that a different Mr. Miracle starred in Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers miniseries, and I think he's been over in the new 52 Maxi series like Future's End, but who cares about that? <laughs> uh, David, did I miss anything important there? No, Shiloh, well, you're referring to Shiloh Norman. Mm-hmm. He, um, he's, I guess, kind of the de facto Mr. Miracle at this point. I don't, I don't really know what Scott Free's involvement in DCU is today. Is the new 52 one, is that Scott Free or is that Shiloh Norman? Do you know? I haven't really been reading. Okay. <laughs> Me neither. Or yeah. DCU. I'm, I'm kind of, and I want to make this clear, it's not because of the of the reboot or whatever, what is it, new 52. I just sort of was on my way out of comics anyway, and this just gave me a convenient out. Mm-hmm. So I never, it's rare that I'll look at something. <laughs> I completely get it, and I agree. But unfortunately, I think I'll, I'll have to end this call and, and find a new guest who is a fan of Future's End. Is it good? No, I don't think so. But. Oh, well, well, well. <laughs> no. Oh, oh, oh. No. No. Oh. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a couple of minutes with the origin of Mr. Miracle and Oberon. Don't go away. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant-Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about White Tiger? <laughs> Doc Samson. <laughs> Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I want to break free. Secret Origins, issue 33, is cover dated December 1988. The actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was August 23rd that year. The book cost $1.50 and sported a cover by Jerry Ordway and Ty Templeton. That was the first part of a triptych with issues 34 and 35. David, what do you think of this cover? Well, first let me say that Jerry Ordway and Ty Templeton are two of my favorite artists. But... The cover is is just kind of it's not for two guys who are known for their dynamic and and beautiful work it's fairly bland and I I don't think it's the most <laughs> adventurous cover I've seen and I know and I, and I know they're kind of stapled in whenever you have triptych covers typically they don't look that great because they you know there has to be the focal point on each of the covers for whatever that specific issue is trying to sell 
but it's very flat and boring. And um, seeing these guys fly or make an ice slide over the New York skyline, not the most interesting thing Ordway's done. One of the last covers that Ordway did on this was the uh, issue with Power Girl and Hawkman, and that also had them flying over like an aerial shot of the cityscape. <laughs> I wonder if he had that on his brain. Maybe he had like five minutes, you know, <laughs> and said, hey, listen, I got this New York background. I got to draw these nine characters. Give me 10 minutes. And, they- <laughs> and it's hard for me to judge each of these covers individually because I, I tend to think of them as a three piece. But even then, I mean, there's a lot of weird blank space between them because of like the way they have to be arranged. So it's. It's not yeah. great. I like the idea. I like what they were going for. Jerry Ordway is a terrific artist. I, I would never think to partner him with Ty Templeton inking. Maybe Ty just had like the free time. Um, <laughs> but but nice. uh, I, I would like to see more by them. I just think what should be a very dynamic, what should be a very energetic set of covers. Uh, I don't know. The ladies, they, they seem kind of bored. Their faces and... Well, yeah, they get progressively less interesting visually. So mm-hmm. the most attention seems to be paid on, and he's the largest of the three figures on on Mister Miracle. And then maybe there's a little less detail on on, on I guess Green Flame at the mm-hmm. time, right? Fire, yeah. and then just very little <laughs> detail on Ice Maiden as she brings up the rear. I was very surprised to find out who did the cover based on the powerhouse mm-hmm. names that that did it. Not a not, not a fan. Not a fan, Ryan. Not a fan. <laughs> On that very, very positive note, do you want to get into the story and tell our listeners the secret origins of Mr. Miracle and Oberon? Yeah, first of all, yeah. no, The cover is cheating you by only saying it's Mr. Miracle because you are in for a twofold tale of uh, Mr. Miracle and his, I don't want to say his kind of sidekick slash manager slash best friend, Oberon. This is a story written by Mike Carlin, very big DC mainstay, drawn by uh, Don Heck and inked by two inkers, Art Adams and Klaus Janssen. Art Adams doing, I believe, the Oberon part of the story and Klaus Janssen inking the Scott Free part of the story. First off, it's important to note that you have to think of these as origin of Scott Free, not Mr. Miracle necessarily. And the way the story is told is every page, it's almost like uh, they predicted the age of digital comics because every page is, is split in half <laughs> with the top half scot-free, bottom half being Oberon. Oh, it's also important to note that the story is told by each of them by their individual points of view. And so we open the story at a performance and Mr. Miracle is chained and being shot through the air via cannon by Oberon. Big Bart is behind them. And then we find out that we're at a charity event. As soon as Mr. Miracle shot through the cannon, the story then begins getting split into their two halves. For Scott Free's part, we're on Apocalypse, and uh, that's where we learn that Scott is learning to master these things called arrow discs to serve Darkseid. And uh, he has a friend there named Maki, who is trying to navigate this treacherous course of fire pits along with Scott, but Maki falls. At the same time, I don't know when this is happening, <laughs> but at the same time, according to Oberon anyway, we're in an apartment building and then there's a fire and Oberon's entire family is in this tenement and it burns down, making Oberon an orphan. So now we begin our story with two orphans. Back on Apocalypse, Mackie falls into the fire pit and dies. And that's where we are introduced to Granny Goodness, who's running the orphanage that Scott Free is a part of. Scott Free has this look that a very homogenous look that all the other orphans have. They're all buff, bald dudes, like Shag. They all look like <laughs> Shag with arrow discs. So she uh, she punishes Scott 
for trying to save Maki. It's a sign of weakness, and in order to serve, in order to to become a this accomplished warrior in Apocalypse, you have to be free of that. Back on Earth, uh, Oberon ends up joining the circus because he's an orphan, and he is equally punished by the ringmaster there, who who slaps him and makes a very strange threat about "Don't make me call the state." And I don't know. What, I don't. I guess that would just means Oberon's going to be uh, hauled off to a. Um, to, to temporary housing or, or become part, I guess, part of a state orphanage. Much better to sleep with an elephant if you're an orphan. It's a weird threat, right? Because <laughs> if, if the ringleader calls the state, he's in trouble <laughs> because he's employing underage labor. And, well, I guess Oberon really isn't thinking things through. Well, the, the ringleader's got to be counting on the fact that this kid wouldn't know that kind of law. <laughs> Carnies are smart people. <laughs> so then, uh, back in Apocalypse. We learn that Scott Free has risen in the ranks of uh, Dark Side stormtroopers, and he's wrestling up these people called Hunger Dogs, which I think are Apocalypse's homeless. It, it is important to note that there's not a lot of background given on Apocalypse or why this place is so horrible. I think the comic expects the reader to just know that Apocalypse sucks and kind of who these characters, that all these new gods that we keep getting introduced to are. The comic doesn't really do a good story of telling you who these people are and why we should understand them, but... Anyway, so we learn that Scott is rising in the ranks of Dark Side Stormtroopers. He's rounding up the Hunger Dogs, and um, he lets them go, but he's spotted by Granny Goodness, which is the worst thing that can happen because now he's going to get punished again. Back on Earth, Oberon is cleaning the elephant tent when he receives another threat from the ringleader. He starts to cry, and he consoles himself in the elephant pit, or the elephant tent, I guess. <laughs> in the most humiliating turn of events possible, Oberon is then grabbed by the remaining carnies and turned into a clown. I don't know <laughs> what kind of punishment that is. Like, like, yeah, they dress him up like a clown with makeup and everything. And <laughs> I don't, I don't know uh, what effect that's supposed to have on him. It humiliates him. I guess he's dehumanized. I don't know. And this is odd. I guess he's he's a little person. Never factors into the story. And maybe that. <laughs> but if that, that's supposed to be the, like the worst possible humiliation, what is, what is that suggesting about a clowns? <laughs> or B, the state of Oberon's psyche. But if I'm a kid, that would probably be the coolest thing that you could do to me. Well, I mean, if, if you're attacked by the circus strongman, the bearded lady, that and alone, that just just picture that. These people are hovering over you, and they're making you up. They're, just, <laughs> they're tearing your clothes off and putting you in a clown outfit. Pretty humiliating. So we need, like, um, we need like the Freaks soundtrack in this moment to really get this. <laughs> they all say, one of us, as they do. <laughs> and then as, as, as this is happening, Oberon goes to console, console himself, and uh, he hears being screamed off panel, hold it, son. Meanwhile, <laughs> Scott, back in Apocalypse, is beaten by the other stormtroopers. And uh, this is where Scott resolves, instead of being un- put under the thumb of Granny Goodness and her orphanage, he's going to be free. Back on Earth, the guy who told Oberon, hey, hold it there. Turns out it's this guy named Thaddeus Brown, who is Earth's Mr. Miracle. So he takes Oberon under his wing and makes him his assistant, and Oberon kind of becomes his surrogate son. At this point, it's it's also important to note that Oberon is roughly in his preteens, or he's pretty young at this point. Back on Apocalypse, Metron of the New Gods discovers Scott Free, and Metron is from New Genesis, and that is Apocalypse's opposite world, where Apocalypse is dark, New Genesis is light. This, by the way, is not explained in the comic whatsoever. It turns out that uh, they're this horn enemy of Apocalypse, and they, he starts, and Metron starts to secretly teach Scott about the world outside. And, of course, the most important lesson anyone can learn, how to be patient. 
He also introduces Scott to the apocalypse resistance led by this man named Hyman. Back on Earth, Oberon learns that Thaddeus took him in, uh, maybe because Thaddeus' son had gone missing and he, he needed that. He needed somebody to fill that void in his life. But then, in probably one of the most awkward panels in comics, Oberon and Thaddeus go to Vietnam. And they have, they have, they have um, Mr. Miracle carrying an M16 running through the jungles <laughs> of Vietnam. I never... <laughs> It sounds ridiculous to say, and it's an e- it's equally as ridiculous a visual to see this man who's clad in red and yellow and green with his giant green cape running through the paddy fields of Vietnam with a machine gun. <laughs> with a machine gun and a now clearly older because he's got gray hair at this point. Oberon keeping step with him, <laughs> and Thaddeus is no spring chicken himself. By the way, he's 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 gray and beard. He's a, anyway. Um, back in Apocalypse, we learned that um, Hyman, leader of the resistance, <laughs> wow, just said it out loud. The inappropriately named Hyman, leader of the resistance, Hyman has also invented the mother box, and we are told that that's an important thing, but we never really discover why until later. Barda, big Barda, who's we don't we've never seen before, is one of Granny Goodness's furies. And she breaks through a wall looking for somebody named Aurelia, who is a former Fury who is now in league with Hymon. Back on Earth, Thad and Oberon learn that uh, Thaddeus' son is declared dead by the U.S. government. Yet, Thaddeus somehow receives a letter from his son saying that he's alive and that he'd fallen in with some guy named Steelhand of Intergang. And that's when they burst in and interrupt this meeting by Steelhand, a Jack Kirby villain. Uh, meanwhile... Back on Apocalypse, Barda takes her teammate from Hyman and frees her teammate just in time for Darkseid's forces to storm the Resistance headquarters. Hyman orders all his students to phase out, whatever that means, and uh, Scott manages to escape at this point. It's also worth noting that Darkseid's forces just look like a bunch of homeless people, which is a little strange. Did you get that? They look like the Hunger Dogs. Yeah, that's a... Actually, that, that is a direct reference to one of the stories, and I think... I think it was a mob of hunger dogs, like storming a Hyman's like little hideout because like they would be punished because he was hiding out among them, and Darkseid's soldiers basically said, "We're going to start doing like mass executions if you don't turn this guy over to us." Okay. So yeah, the, well, yeah, that's so a those, huge thing to leave out. It kind of is, but <laughs> okay. I didn't know if those were the same guys. Okay, so yeah. they're such a visual. They they look so similarly. Anyway, okay. So then Scott is in, he, he's on his way out, and he's pursued by parademons. And then he's freed by Big Barda and her Furies. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Mr. Miracle has told Oberon to hang back as Mr. Miracle bursts into this meeting. He's then taken captive by Steelhand. Mr. Miracle asks Steelhand what's happened to his, to his son. That's where it's revealed where Mr. Miracle's son has somehow <laughs> ruined Steelhand's entire Europe, European criminal plans. Whatever he's done, he's ruined it for Steelhand. Steelhand gets mad and shoots a bolt at Mr. Miracle, and then the hut that they're in catches fire. Again, Oberon having to deal with the people that he loves at the risk of being burned to death. Back in Apocalypse, Scott is close to escape. And I don't know if you understood this, Ryan. I'm not sure where he's escaping to, but the comic says that he's seconds from escape. And he turns to Barda and says, come with me. She says, no, I'm not ready for that. Then Scott turns, and he's facing... Metron and Hyman, who I guess got away, and a boom tube. So this was... 
he had, Scott had been caught essentially like working with Hyman and like sort of betraying the other like Apocalyptian soldiers and stormtroopers. And he had to like free Hyman or help him escape, and they were coming for him. So yeah, he was escaping, and Big Barton, the female Furies, betrayed Granny Goodness and helped him mount this this rescue. That's operation. a lot. This is two panels in the <laughs> in this comic. That's a whole lot of backstory. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, but it's just weird because the comic says that he's seconds from escaping. I don't know to where. Then he turns and he sees Metron and Hyman. And they're the ones that are really providing the escape because they have a boom tube behind them. Mm-hmm. And that's where we first get to see Dark Seed or Dark Side. How do you say it? Dark Soid. Dark Soid. <laughs> or Dark we get to see Dark Said. I say Sabotage. <laughs> no say one that. says that. William Shatner says Sabotage. No one says Tomato. <laughs> I say Sabotage. And so uh, the boom tube is before him. They say, you can escape to Earth. I guess Mr. Miracle learns what Earth is uh, via Metron's teaching. Darkseid says, no, you stay with me and we will kill Scott Free and you will learn the majesty of Darkseid's power. I don't know how that's a selling point for Darkseid, how they would want to keep Scott there. But, uh, of course, Scott opts for uh, freedom. Back on Earth, Oberon sees Mr. Miracle, Thaddeus Brown, and Steelgrave, drags them to safety, takes them to a hospital where they're recuperating. In the hospital, Thaddeus uh, still wants to know where the locations of his son. Steelgrave says, I'll make you a bet. I'll tell you where he is. He's alive, by the way. I'll tell you where he is. If you can make the ultimate escape, which is death. Scott takes the boom tube to Earth. And this is where we just, we are flying by, by Scott's life at record speed. Because uh, then he tells us that he just hooks up with Oberon, becomes Mr. Miracle, frees Barda, gets married, and joins the Justice League all in, I guess, a matter of like three or four panels, right? Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Back on Earth, Thaddeus, the Mr. Miracle, has uh, announced that he's going to perform again and do this ultimate escape thing. It's during a routine exercise, as Oberon puts it, that he is shot and killed and now Scott Free is part of the story. Despite Scott Free's powers or abilities, he can't save Thaddeus. So he takes on Thaddeus's identity of Mr. Miracle, tricks Steelclaw into thinking that Thaddeus has escaped death, and then Thaddeus's son eventually makes his way home in sort of a footnote <laughs> of their lives. Um, and then we're back in the present, where Scott then reveals to us that he loves... He's kind of an adrenaline junkie. He thrives on danger and excitement, and he likes it when Oberon's escape uh, devices push him to the limits. But he loves his life. He loves his wife. He loves his friends. He loves he loves everything that's going on with him. Now we're back in the present with Oberon as well. Bit of a darker soul, sort of a half-empty guy. Grumbles his way through it, talks about joining the JLI, talks about how Scott is now Mr. Miracle, and kind of loves it all in spite of himself. And he's kind of a he's kind of a grandma in, in that he he feels like he has to make sure everybody's okay before he can be okay. And then that's it. Did I get everything? Um. Well, the things that you didn't include were not your fault. <laughs> I mean, this thing moves, man. This this thing. It it's one of those things that moves so quickly you can't think about what the hell you just saw or read. Mm-hmm. Except so, for Mr. Miracle running through the rice paddy with an M16. That's going to stop me at any at any point. So it's 15 pages. And 30 it's essentially, pages. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of two stories like with basically like seven or eight really truncated pages trying to cram a whole lot of story in there. The thing you mentioned where when 
uh, it's on page 13, when Scott Free boom tubes onto Earth, that top page, we see him yeah. leaping into Earth. The second panel, which is him in a blue suit walking upon Mr. Miracle and Oberon, that's like page one of his first comic. And then the last panel on that same page, in just their <laughs> section, is him with the Justice League International. <laughs> it's a couple days. It's a couple <laughs> it's, days. It's, it's a miracle, man. It, it sure is. Um, okay, uh, we can we can take this a little bit at a time. But what were you want to unpack over- this? Yeah, what were your overall thoughts of that? What was the general impression? I understood what they what Carlin was trying to accomplish with his story. And I can kind of applaud that it's a it's a dual narrative and you have you kind of have the characters going through similar emotions in their origins. Uh, but it ultimately doesn't work. Well, because of pacing. Right. And and two. Well, I guess really that's it because of pacing. And I never get a sense of who either of them really are. I mean, it. I went in liking Scott Free before re- reading this, obviously, and knowing some of his origin because I read that Jack Kirby omnibus mm-hmm. of his a while ago. But it's it's so ridiculously fast. If the story was just to get Scott out of Apocalypse, they should have just done that. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. they could have, and that could have been 15 pages of just Scott. If they wanted to tell Oberon's tragic story of orphan to clown to Michael Caine in The Prestige to the guy <laughs> who answers the phone at the league embassy, that could have been 15 pages too. But to <laughs> to just cram everything over really split pages. If you want to think about it, each of them only had about seven and a half pages each. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's too, it's too much for too short a time. It's, it's spreading itself too thin. Yeah. And I think the problem is, I like the idea. I like what he was trying to do with the dual narrative. Uh, the problem is, and you pointed out the pacing, and I think that's because Oberon's story did not need as much time and attention as Scott's did. We just naturally, it's just, he's not as interesting a character and he shouldn't be the focal point. Oberon's story could have been four or five pages of this. Are and you saying he should have, he deserved a short story? <laughs> Is that too on the nose? <laughs> a little bit. On the cloud nose. Uh, yeah, I think Oberon did not need half of this narrative. I think it detracted, it pulled away some really important parts from Scott Free's origin story and it crowded the art and it really I had a so considering how dense and compact some of these panels have to be in order to get all of the stuff on each page it's really overwritten at times and it's crowded with a lot of captions and narrative captions right Don Heck must have had a hell of a time no pun intended drawing <laughs> drawing this thing because a lot of it's just people kind of poking out of the corners, <laughs> trying to cram, yeah, trying to get every character that's talking mm-hmm. or that's or that's supposed to be featured or important somehow, and you get no sense. And I would argue this: Barda, huge part of Scott's life mm-hmm. and Scott's story, three panels, maybe four or five. Like the love story is a huge part of Mister Miracle, mm-hmm. and it was very much what what does what the focal point of his um, solo so- series was. Or wait, has his solo series hadn't been published around this time right the post-crisis one yeah that would have come out a year around then or a year after that i think that started in 88 or 89 this came out in 88 but i don't know th- it wasn't out okay. at the time this came out well that became obviously the big you know it was a sitcom essentially right but right. uh with them but, trying to live a normal life in the suburbs and right. and stuff kept on attacking <laughs> their house 
Oh, it's so good. But but <laughs> but uh, um, it's just yeah. It it um they they glossed over a lot. It'd be like if you did a story of my life and never mentioned my wife or son except, except twice. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of big deals. But um, we did talk about the time when you went to Vietnam <laughs> in costume. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that was my dad. <laughs> yeah, so, it was a. Uh, yeah. And getting back to the crowded nature of it, like you, you'll see it when you're reading comics. Like every once in a while, when there's like a a phantom caption, it's like, wait, where am I supposed to read this? Where does this kind of like pop up? There were multiple times while I'm reading this where I'm thinking, do the caption boxes read left to right or top to bottom? Oh right, yeah, because I had a hard switch. time with that too. Yeah, and just like kind of the nature of it. Oh, it was it was hard to read at points. It's like this is kind of basic comics 101 stuff that they're failing at because of how cramped in the the structure of this this is a this is an editor of note who wrote this yeah <laughs> the guy who uh who managed the death of superman storyline kept all those balls in the air <laughs> couldn't couldn't do this this easily could have been the whole comic you know what i mean they could have they could have made the mr miracle story the entire thing so yeah it's 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 a real shame that what i would say the best new god Sure. Tied for maybe first for Orion, with Orion, mm-hmm. but uh, it just doesn't get the, the attention he deserves. The first time I read this, I was confused because I hadn't read the first time I read this story. I hadn't read any of Mister Miracle solo stuff, and like because I, I read this like long before I did the podcast, I was like, oh, I, "Who is this guy? I don't, I don't think I get this or what this what their right. relationship is about." Like it floored me. I was like, "Okay, you look at Mister Miracle's costume. What we've described it, how garish it is, how gaudy. It's like, okay, that is a Kirby costume through and through." Right. And that had that had to originate on Apocalypse or New Genesis. No, it didn't. The costume, but it makes sense. The costume started on in a guy in a circus named Thaddeus Brown, who was a t- human with no connection to that. Right. And I was like, how does that make sense? Why? Who? who what human would dress like that? If you're well, a carny. But he's not even like the other carnies look normal. But so except for Clown Oberon. Yeah. But no, I get you. Yeah, and, and it, it's weird because you don't, Mister Miracle. The big deal about him is that he's a, an amazing escape artist, mm-hmm. even with the help of Mother Box. Mm-hmm. Every time he doesn't really escape, people just keep saving him in this cup. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, he never uses. He's not crafty. He's not. He doesn't get it. He, he never gets himself out of a situation. People let him out every time. He's not an escape artist. He's just kind of a, an escapee. It's not. It's a big disservice to what the character is supposed to be. I think. It's sort of like the uh, the Christopher Nolan version of Batman, whose fighting style comes down to taking more punches than the other guy. And mumbling. <laughs> and mumbling, mumbling. I am pretty sure Jack Kirby created the concept of a character named Hyman creating something called a mother box just because he knew we would do a podcast about it someday. <laughs> he just wanted people to say it out loud. Yep. <laughs> this is Hyman and his mother box. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hyman is broke. He doesn't have any money. But no, it's it's <laughs> no, it's um yeah, it's uh, well Kirby, like you said, I think when we were talking about doing this, not Mr. Subtle, no. you know? He's got a guy named Dark Seed. He's supposed to be Dark Sud. Supposed to be the uh, antithesis of everything good. Anti life equation. Mm-hmm. Not life equation. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. and you're right. His pitch to Scott Free is, "Come with me. We will destroy and strip down everything about your identity, so you can serve me." Hmm. Why and ever? His name Scott... is 
<laughs> Why and his name's Scott Free. Exactly. What, what, he's got no. He's he's, he's got to live up to his name. Either that or he becomes a cleaner or something, right? <laughs> it's very. It's because and we joke about this kind of the ridiculousness of it, but it Kirby's version is amazing. It's it's my favorite of the four New Gods title. Well, mm-hmm. Jimmy Olsen's really good too, but but of the four New Gods titles that he did, I love his Mr. Miracle stuff. It is just ridiculously nuts. And I finally I tracked down some of them. I badly badly want to get the omnibuses, but I'm there. I think right now they're out of print, or you have to pay some insane. Overpriced oh, fee for him. That's too bad. I'm it's hoping good. I'm hoping right. they come back into print. But I was able to track down some of the early Kirby issues of Mister Miracle, and I think issues like seven, eight, and nine deal specifically with this story arc. Kind of, it's like all a flashback of yeah. how Scott got off of Apocalypse and his growing up, his training, how he met Big Barda, her slow sort of conversion as as she was kind of trained to be one of these female furies, these elite, and how she falls for him and starts to help him and saves him when it's, he's about to be killed. And the whole thing was studying under Hyman and Metron taking them and freeing them. And Kirby made it huge and expansive and epic and took his time with it over a couple issues. And here Carlin's just got to throw it into like five half pages. And yeah. ultimately, I, I mean... I think we both agree that we really, really like this character. And love him. I, I love the saga of Mr. Miracle, but this story did a disservice to him. It's spread too thin or it's too compact. It's just it's hitting the high points, but not not in a way that kind of flows organically. It, it makes him pretty dull and it does. uninteresting. If, if I had read this and never read a Mr. Miracle comic after that, I would be fine with it because I would think this is this is the guy who yeah who cares how did this guy end up with five series that keep getting canceled <laughs> but and maybe it's because of the guys that have handled Shiloh Norman the guy who takes over for and actually Scott's appointed replacement Scott mm-hmm. trained him and everything he's never really resonated for me the way Scott has and I I think part of that has to do with Scott's cast mm-hmm. that again is I mean you have Oberon in the story but his interactions with Oberon are they're always well written and they're pretty strong where you have they're they're best friends mm-hmm. but Oberon has to try to kill him on, like on a like well i guess put him in danger on a regular basis but you know what friend wants to do that but your best friend wants you to almost kill him every time so you mm-hmm. have to do and uh, and of course his relationship with Barda who Barda who who is desperately wants to almost be normal but can't Right, you know, what I mean? but and talk and about really an underdeveloped character we need <laughs> we need more with big Barda zing Oh, I thought you meant okay. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay, <laughs> she's she is far from underdeveloped. Yeah, well, you know she's based on. Um, oh, I forget the name of the actress. Lainey Kazan. Lainey Kazan. It's based on Lainey Kazan. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the art in the story? See, this is where I, I it really breaks my heart because I like Don Heck. He's not one of my favorite. I guess what is he? A broad? No, Silver? No. Is he uh, Golden I mean, Age guy? Okay, no, no kind of a, I mean, I mean. <laughs> I, I think of him as a Marvel Age artist because I associate him mostly with Iron Man, although yeah. I don't think superheroes were ever his forte or, or what he excelled at. Yeah, it wasn't very good. And uh, it oddly enough, because Jansen and uh, Klaus Jansen and Art Adams have, especially Art Adams, such a very distinctive style, but they managed to not overwhelm his art. And Jansen, I mean, you can immediately tell Jansen's inks because they're, they're rougher edged. Sometimes people look like Frank Miller drawings, but um, and I don't really blame Don Heck so much as uh, as the script for having to 
make this maybe one of the more pedestrian things he's had to draw in his lifetime. It's okay for me because I kind of associate him as a contemporary with Jack Kirby. And while I don't think anybody really drew like Jack Kirby, except Keith Gethin could when he tried to. Steve Rude. Steve Rude too. Yeah. Okay. Fair. fair. Um, but I, so I kind of, I like the idea that they were trying to give Dunheck the, the connection there are moments there are a few panels throughout this where you see the exact same panel in both the top and bottom stories and right. it's kind of funny to compare them like on page 2 when we see the trap mr miracle right. has been shot out of the cannon he's in a straight jacket with chains wrapped around it and his feet are bound he's flying through a flaming hoop towards a wall of spikes it's a great kind of adventuresome escape that's kirby esque yeah that's yeah. And we're seeing it told – we see the exact same panel twice, except you see the different ways that it's embellished by the inker. Um, and just a little bit different shadings on the cliff, on the, the crowd, on the costume. The fire seems a lot bigger in the Art Adams version. Um, and then on the final page in the story – Oh, you even get a change of expression in Barda. It's, mm-hmm. al- it's, it's almost like a different person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. On the last page, you get the same thing. It's all four panels are identical, except they're not identical because you see how the inkers affect the explosion of the spikes. The yeah, the expressions on the characters' faces. What's interesting about that is, and then maybe this is overthinking it, but Oberon's is a little more somber than than Scott's. Mm-hmm. So that kind of plays into their personalities. Although I wouldn't say that that's an intentional thing. Right. <laughs> but but uh, thanks for thanks for nothing. Ryan, asking me to review this one. I'm sorry, but hey, there are certainly better Mr. Miracle stories to be had. Oh, yeah. And and again, I have only read about half a dozen of the original Kirby Mr. Miracle stories, but I love them so much. They're good fun, man. I really um, want to read more of those. Yeah, they're like a Def Leppard album. Just (laughs) just put it on and have fun. I would also say his early Justice League um, the one shot that Demetrius, I think that's how you say his name, yeah, did with uh, Joe Phillips is exceptional, and then his um, his ongoing series that took place at the same time as as his JL, JLI membership is also wonderful. I started reading that one too, and I like that. I've only read the first four or five issues, but that was a whole lot of fun too. Great series. Anything from the late '80s or ni- early '90s of Scott Free is is, is worth picking up. Oh, there's an action comics that's really interesting in a <laughs> in a early in Burns run where he uh, teams up with Superman and they look for Barda and Superman and Barda had made this sex tape because Superman is, is brainwashed by this guy named Sleaze. Yeah. Who's, who's from uh, Apocalypse. Yeah. Action Comics 593, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's not I wouldn't say it's their finest hour, but, <laughs> but it's um. But it's 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 an interesting it's it's an interesting appearance by those two, and it's 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 worth it alone for the, the series of panels of, of Mister Miracle's face as his expression changes as he's watching the, <laughs> the horror of watching his wife with another man. Can't escape that one. <laughs> oh, and maybe that'll be the last word on this. <laughs> Any final thoughts on the story or the character in general? The character is wonderful. I think um, – oh, we also didn't talk about how he was based on Steranko. Mm. Uh, Jack Kirby based him on, on fellow artist Jim Steranko who was – in addition to probably being the most fascinating human being on earth and one of the great artists of our time, is, was an escape artist. And, um, I knew that and I always forget about that. 
but I, and that so he story made, keeps coming up to me in weird ways. I was like, well, so he, he kinda, wasn't really, but yeah. He, <laughs> no, yeah, Stranko's one of those guys that you would just hear like, oh, yeah, I swallowed a bullet. You know what I mean? <laughs> No, he um yeah, so uh he's he's based on Jim Steranko and his amazing feats of escapism. Fantastic. And of course, leave it to Jack Kirby to think like in the future that would be a god. There would be a god of escapism. Well there yeah, well, that's comics, right? He, in in many ways Jack himself was the god of escapism. Yeah. All right, so if you can find more of Mr. Miracle stories, the original run by Kirby, get those the late 80s early 90s uh solo run, that was great. Uh, and he has his appearances in Justice League International, all good stuff. He's a fantastic character. He's so fun. I just think this origin couldn't break free. It was too confined by the pages. But All right, David. Thank you very much again for being part of this episode. Um, Thanks any, for having me on. Any projects that you want to plug? I know Ultraverse is, I mean, like you said, it's still available. Yeah, it's still there, just like the comics in your back issue bin. I have some more pieces for Emmys.com coming out. I do a lot of entertainment reporting now. I have some pieces on newsarama.com, but I think those are kind of over at this point. Um, also, I made an appearance on Rob's Film and Water podcast recently where we talked about the David Bowie movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm-hmm. So please listen to that. It was a good episode. Thank you. Thank you. It was hard. It was hard to, to do that one. Yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, not as hard as this one for different reasons. And speaking, but yes. <laughs> you mentioned it too. Speaking of David Bowie and speaking of escapism, the movie Prestige. I need to put that oh. in again because I really love that movie. Yeah, just watch it for the Bowie part. It's Tesla. <laughs> yes. I was in the theater. I remember I, I let out like a scream. Yeah. <laughs> David, <laughs> Holy shit, it's David Bowie. David Bowie as Nicholas Tesla with Andy Serkis as his assistant. Two, <laughs> two actors side by side who I thought could play the shit out of the Joker if they were ever cast yeah. as the Joker. Yeah. Oh, oh. Well, David Bowie could – he'd be a great Superman. Imagine that guy coming to save you, trying to trying to pull off Clark Kent. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I, 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 yeah, he could do anything. Anyway, but the, right. yeah, so so you can find me on Emmys.com or um, my written work, or on Newsarama.com, or on the Man Who Fell to Earth with Film and Water, and hopefully I'll be doing some more of Rob's shows. It's really up to him. I hope he brings you back because that was a fun show to listen to. So. All right, David, thank you very much one more time for being on Secret Origins Podcast with me. And listeners, don't go away because after this promo break, we've got two more Secret Origins to cover this episode. Black Canary, is your hand okay? No, it's broken, but my heart is mended knowing that we got Rico into a safer home. Indeed. I can't believe that he was able to survive suicide slums all by himself. Oracle, let's make sure he has the best birthday ever. Ashford, do you want to go in with us on a gift? I don't do birthdays. What do you mean you don't do birthdays? I'm tired of birthdays already. How can you be tired of birthdays? Every time I look up, someone is having a birthday, Black Canary, and they just can't have one birthday. It's always, my birthday is on Tuesday, but the party is on Saturday, but my parents are coming in on Sunday, so we're having the dinner on Friday. By the end of the week, according to the logic of birthdays, the person has aged five years. Dude, birthdays gotta stop. If the birthday stopped, that means the person is dead. Hmm. I think that's existential. Subscribe to Feathers and Foes on iTunes. Follow Feathers and Foes on Twitter at Feathers and Foes and email at the Feathers and Foes website. Somebody call 911. 
talk about the origin of green flame, better known today as fire. My guest previously appeared on Secret Origins talking about Blue Beetle and Jonah Hex, and soon you'll be able to hear him on an episode of Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. Bringing the sexy Brazilian flavor to this show is Mr. Tim Wallace. How are you, buddy? <laughs> I, am, I am doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. You are Brazilian, are you not? I am. Um, uh, you know what? I, I did one of those Ancestry.com uh, DNA tests where you spit in the cup and mail it back to them. And I, I think there was just a tiny bit of absolutely no, I am not Brazilian. Then why did I ask you to be on this segment? Are you a fan of fire? Not, I, not I am a, f- a fan of fire like you're a pyromaniac. I mean, are I, you a fan of the character Green Flame? Eh. As, as a kid, I might have been a fan of Fire the Pyromaniac, but um, but no, I I I love Justice League International, and and every one of those characters holds a holds a special place in my heart. That was the Justice League that I read when I first started collecting comics. Uh, so, did you discover this character through the book? Yeah, through uh, JLI. I think probably the first time I saw her would have been in when she was part of Justice League International during the Death of Superman saga. She didn't leave much of an impression on me, even at that you know tender, impressionable <laughs> age where she's. I mean, she's generally considered to be a sort of sex pot type character, and for some reason, she just she never did it for me. When she was depicted later on as just covered in green flame, like a green female version of Human Torch, I think that power set is kind of boring. Like nobody does it better than the Human Torch, but. As we will see, as we kind of go through this origin story, I've come to like this character a lot more recently. Um, interestingly, I like her more as an adult than I did as an impressionable young young lad who would have only found the titillation aspect of this character. <laughs> um, Interesting. So, I mean, have you have you always liked her, or have your feelings better changed? Uh, um, I think mine have have pretty much stayed level. I have the same feelings for her now that I did then, and it, it's a kind of a mix of everything you just said. Mm-hmm. There's the part of me that likes her because of her connection to Justice League International. There's part of me that knows that that whole uh, sexy lady character was there, but you know she's no Starfire, so. <laughs> Although they try, they try a few times in this issue to uh... to make her look like Starfire. They sure <laughs> yes. Do. All right. Well, let's uh, before we get on to the story, let's uh, go through her publication history. As okay. always, if I leave anything out, feel free to jump in and correct me or add something. B. DaCosta first appeared not as Fire or Green Flame, but rather as Green Fury of the Global Guardians in issue twenty-five of Super Friends back in nineteen seventy-nine. A few years later, she appeared in Super Friends issues 42, 43, 44, and 47, but the Super Friends comic book tie-in was generally considered out of continuity, so her real debut in the DC Universe was when the Global Guardians teamed up with Superman in DC Comics Presents issue 46. After the crisis, Green Fury appeared in Infinity Incorporated issue 32, but with issue 34 she was rebranded Green Flame. She went on to appear in Infinity Incorporated issues 35 through 37, but once Justice League International was formed, the Global Guardians more or less disbanded. Still wanting to serve the cause of justice, Green Flame and her friend Ice Maiden joined the Justice League. And she stayed with the Justice League for years in various incarnations, popping up in Justice League International, Justice League America, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, 
She kind of faded into obscurity in the late 90s, but 10 years later she became the Black Knight of Checkmate, written by Greg Rucka. During Brightest Day, she starred in the maxi-series Justice League Generation Lost. In the New 52, she was in a handful of issues of Justice League International, but that series folded early, and I'm not sure if she's appeared since. Do you know if I missed anything in all of that? Uh, no. Not that I can think of. I mean, she's been around, but kind of in one particular corner. Right. I do think I, I, I want to address something before we go on. Neither of these names are really catching. I, the name Fire really only works if she's partnered with Ice. And Green Flame as a name for a character, also not great. <laughs> Maybe a Green Lantern from uh, from the Sun. Oh. <laughs> Anything, really. I, I, think, I think this character has been held back by the fact that she has dumb code names. Yes. Honestly, I think I would like BB better as she goes by in this one. But, <laughs> so. All right, anyway, Tim, are you ready to tell our guests the origin of Green Flame? I am ready if they are. <laughs> Let's assume they are. <laughs> they don't have a choice. Or actually, okay. they can just stop this. <laughs> okay. All right, go on. All right, so uh, this is Green Flame's origin, The Spy Who Blew Me Up. Uh, scripted by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, penciled by Chuck Austin, and inked by Gary Martin. We start off with Beatrice Bonilla da Costa uh, lounging on a beach and recording a synopsis of her life and career for the Brazilian Film Commission. Apparently, they want to make a movie about their homegrown heroine. So, speaking into the mic, she explains that until recently, she wouldn't have shared some of these details, but she's a member of the JLI now, so what the heck? She makes it very clear, call her Bibi, not Beatrice. As a kid, she practically grew up on the beach, uh, recreating the classic Coppertone ad with the puppy pulling down her pants, stealing toupees from unwitting tourists, and leaving men falling down left and right like they were Jack Tripper on Three's Company. <laughs> until, <laughs> until one day, she gets noticed. Uh, she ends up with her first modeling job and promptly walks off the gig to take a job as a showgirl. She's a little creeped out by her boss, uh, Dom Diablo, for reasons that really aren't very clear, but he manages to turn her into an overnight sensation, thinking that it will help him sell his club to the Wayne Foundation. BB, apparently not being fond, uh, not very fond of being used, sabotages the sale and is promptly fired. So she does what any showgirl would do. She applies for a job with the Brazilian Espionage Network. Scantily clad with lots of cleavage on display, she starts traveling the world and in a bit of foreshadowing is very fond of a pyroplasm gun that they issue her. She gets a cold while on a mission in the Alps, but presses ahead with her next mission. It seems her old boss, Dom Diablo, has a son, Menino, who's been up to no good. Menino has holed up in his dad's estate on the French Riviera with stolen pyroplasm equipment and is doing some kind of experiment. The Dom asks that the Espionage Network take care of this, quietly, and without damage or publicity. So Bibi breaks into the estate and tries unsuccessfully to coerce Menino into coming quietly. He's unaffected by her charms? That's a good word <laughs> maybe, maybe he's blind or just has other preferences, but he ends up telling her that he's rigged the place to blow if she tries tampering with his experiment. She calls his bluff, and the place goes, Baroom! BB is exposed to wave after wave of pyroplasm energy and somehow manages to absorb it all. Menino is actually blown clear of the estate, lands in a tree, is found by a couple guys who, instead of calling the cops or an ambulance, decide they're going to contact the media. 
And BB soon finds that with a little sneeze left over from that cold, she can produce green fire from her mouth. Uh, knowing that the authorities are on the way, she tries to make a hot air balloon escape, but manages to fumble that, still not familiar with her new powers, and decides that her best bet instead is to charge up a huge expense report and then flee to the Global Guardian's headquarters to start her new career as a superhero, with a new name, the Green Flame. And the rest, they say, is history. Okay. Oh. Before we before we unpack the story, let's talk about the creators. I was unfamiliar with the writers, Tom and Mary Beerbaum. I just discovered they were the writers of the five years later Legion of Superheroes era uh, for the first 50 issue, working with Keith Giffen, who was plotting, and they were doing the scripting of that. You're a member of the Legion of Superbloggers. Were you even more familiar with them from that? No, I actually wasn't. Um, my Legion knowledge is, is probably more based in the... Uh, the, the Silver Age. Uh, so the, the newer stuff I'm a little less familiar with. Yeah, so they, yeah, they... They worked on that, and then they did the spinoff in the 90s, Legionnaires, neither of which I'm familiar with. We'd have to talk to Dr. Ange about that one. He covered those stories in the Legion of Superbloggers blog. Yeah, he'd probably be a good one to uh, to go to. But, but to your point, none of the creators on this rang any bells for me at the start of, of this. Tom and Mary, um, Chuck Austin, uh, like the name sounded vaguely familiar, but I couldn't quite put my finger on where from. This was so one I had of to look. his earliest things, yeah, and he he started off as an artist and then didn't last as an artist for very long. Um, yeah, he's much more well-known as a writer. He, he wrote Superman for a long time. I know him more as a writer on the X-Men titles in kind of the mid-2000s, and I didn't like his work on that title. I didn't think it was very good. Uh, just looking at his his sort of timeline on uh, Mike's Amazing World, it was really weird that it seemed like he worked in the 80s and he stopped in 1989, and then he came back to working in comics in 2001. So just completely skipped the 90s. Either he decided that comics were going to suck that decade and bugged out, or maybe he got like a staff job or an editorial job. I'm not sure, but it, as I was reading, <laughs> doing research, um, it kind of clicked for me if, on a few different panels that his style kind of reminded me of an Archie comic. <laughs> so I actually went digging on a Comic Book DB, Comic Book Database. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, according to Comic Book Database, Chuck Austin in 1992 was actually listed as the penciler for Cherry's Jubilee. And Cherry's Jubilee being a spinoff of Cherry Pop Tart, uh-huh. which if you, if if you or the re, or the listeners aren't familiar, is sort of the adult spoof of the yeah. Archie comics, <laughs> which seemed so much more appropriate when when you start going through you know the various scantily clad, uh-huh. cleavage laden, uh-huh. um, topless background characters. I don't know if you picked up those. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> it started to become more and more like. Aha! That's why this guy's drawing this. I can see that that career trajectory <laughs> heading that way. Also interesting that that did not make it into his profile in Mike's Amazing World of Comics. That he oh, they've, include that. they've got it on Comic Book DB though. I guess they're uh, they're the Red Tube version of. It. All right, all right, very very cool. Um, what what did you think of the art throughout the story? Um, it was serviceable. I didn't hate it, mm-hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't what immediately came to mind for this look. I'm coming off of Justice League International. I'd be looking for something more like a like a Kevin Maguire mm-hmm. or a uh, 
or Kevin McGuire. Um, <laughs> so, so this look initially kind of, I wouldn't say it put me off, but it threw me off. As I worked my way through, it, it had that sort of cartoony style, uh, the cartoonish look, and, and I I ran with it. I, I was okay with it. But yeah, right at the onset, I was kind of like, huh, this isn't Kevin McGuire. I think it's because the character is so frequently kind of defined or, I mean, we she is a sexualized character. She's a sexual character. That's sort of her whole shtick. We think of her as the hot Brazilian chick in the Justice League that Blue Beetle and Booster Gold were always like salivating over. So I was expecting art that was maybe a little bit more salacious. There's certainly no lack of butt shots and gratuitous cheesecake throughout <laughs> this, but it is a little bit more of that cartoony style. You see it in the facial expressions. You get that. It's like, yeah, that does sort of look like something from Archie. And you can kind of see yes. where that's going. Right from the first page, I mean, for all the fans who wanted to see more of, of Fire Without Her Clothes, well, we see her butt in that first, or that, you know, second panel. <laughs> Fortunately, it's when she's a kid. And you do see the, the whole progression of who this character is, she gets away with all of these things because she's attractive and because she was a cute baby and then a pretty teenage girl and then a beautiful woman and she can do no wrong. She's just a klutz and men fall over themselves to be with her and she's the sort of character that I would hate. Like, <laughs> she's a Kardashian. Oh, God, when you like, put it that way. And she just sort of like failing upwards because people want to sleep with her or want to put her on billboards. But then the story does this really weird, unique thing where I stopped hating her and it just became like, wait, wait, wait she's going to join a spy network just because? Like, <laughs> exactly. That's the stupidest left turn in the story. But, but okay, like if I just accept how silly that is, then it's like, well, okay, now we've taken this into a weird kind of, 70s James Bond type of thing where maybe she's she's too early for the Kardashians maybe she's Charo from the 70s and 80s <laughs> she's, she doesn't have the guitar though come she on she doesn't <laughs> um, but but yeah the, the whole spy thing you, you just happen to get your first modeling gig quit the gig halfway through to take on a showgirl job and then get fired from the showgirl job show up at the espionage network who have that written on their door <laughs> and with no other training or experience get hired on the spot. <laughs> and again, it's, she can get that job because she's beautiful because they like her and because she's beautiful and people like her, she's good at getting information, which actually makes her an effective spy. <laughs> true. True. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, this story should not work. She should be a totally unlikable character with a ridiculous backstory. And the the story and the art, none of these things feel like they should work, but for somehow, I don't know what this weird mix is, but it blended together. The first time I read the story, I hated it. The second time I read the story, I was like, this is really fun. I don't know who this girl is, but I like her. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I actually, in a in a weird way, and you know, I'm probably going to sound like Shag saying she's hot, but in a in a weird way, I actually liked the art more after making that Cherry's Jubilee connection. 
<laughs> and then came back to it and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, then it's sort of like, okay, well, what if a Playboy cartoonist was adapting one of these origin stories? Yeah. It's, right. It's a little bit more appropriate. We get to this moment where she's on a mission to go get the Dom Diablo. Yeah, you mentioned that she doesn't trust him for some reason. Why would you have a problem yeah. with a club owner named Dom Diablo? <laughs> yeah. You see, I'm sure he's on the level. So she goes to retrieve his son, who, yes, for some reason, is the only man in the world who isn't lured by her charms. And he's like, no, don't fire the gun, because I've rigged this place, and you'll blow up everything. She's like, I think you're bluffing. And she shoots <laughs> and blows up everything. Right. It's not a splash page, but it's just two panels. You see the whole building explode, and she gets bathed in these fires. I, my first thought is, she just murdered that kid. <laughs> she just she fired and it blew him up and then it's like no he got thrown across the <laughs> into a tree and he's fine yeah uh, okay okay I guess whatever and this was on the mission that she was specifically asked to do it quietly mm. without damage and without publicity <laughs> yes yes um uh, so then she wakes up and she's been irradiated by this thing and she sneezes green fire. <laughs> now yep. you can call it preposterous but I mentioned that I thought the idea of just a superhero who can burst into fire nobody does it better than the human torch so why bother trying and you can make her a sexy woman and you can make the fire green okay it's still not anything close to the human torch but a character whose shtick is breathing green fire who looks like a dancer at Carnival? <laughs> I love this idea. I wish they stuck with this. Just have her have her super ability, just like shooting fire out of her mouth. That sounds so cool. And and I think if I understand right, though, that's how the character originally displayed mm-hmm. the power. She didn't go full flame on or green flame on until later in the in the publishing history. She started out, I, I think, even in her first few appearances in. In Justice League, mm-hmm. there was little gags about how she really couldn't do a whole lot with that fire. Yeah, I remember Rob and Shag talking about it during the Who's Who podcast. Like, whatever her first appearance was in, in Who's Who, I don't think at that point she could burst into fire. I think she could just spit it or breathe it. And I think that's a cool idea. And then, you know, give her a different name other than Green Flame or Fire. Call her Dragon or Dragoness or something <laughs> like that. Anything but... But that's, it's so unique and so crazy. And then, yeah, so the next part, again, okay, she's just completely botched that job. She's turned herself into a super freak. She's on the run. What is she going to do? She racks up all of this debt and joins the Global Guardian super team to <laughs> escape from her debt. Yes. Again, we shouldn't like this character, but that's amazing. That's so, like, I was like, yes, I want to know more about that. Who is this woman who joined the Justice League and kept her identity a secret to avoid her creditors? <laughs> Maybe it's because there's that little bit of all of us that would want to do the same thing. Absolutely. Like, oh, wait, I've, I've, got, I've got some kind of power now. Well, well, let me do something really terrible and then make up for it later. And seek asylum with the Justice League. <laughs> Somehow, nope. somehow the story built on seemingly contrived, stupid ideas that would not make this character relatable, somehow I think this pulls it off. 
Yeah. And and yeah. the girl the girl that I want to like because she is sold and packaged as nothing but a sexy cheesecake object and that doesn't interest me. Somehow I think she's one of the more fascinating characters that I've come across <laughs> in all of Secret Origins. Again, it's she's a Kardashian, she's Charo, she's like Sofia Vergara from Modern Family. I just <laughs> That's an interesting thought. I, I hadn't actually made that connection way, way back. And it's probably been a year. I actually did on my blog, Court Industries page, did a fan casting mm-hmm. for the Super Buddies, for the for the Justice League International characters, yep, yep. as they later appeared in uh, formerly known as the Justice League. And I actually, now that you say Sofia Vergara, like, wow, that, that should have been so obvious. But I, I think I went Vanessa Hudgens. I can and, see that too, yeah. <laughs> she certainly, Sophia Vergara might be too old. Well, she's definitely too old for, I mean, this girl, I mean, Fire, you got to sell her as, as barely like 20s or something, but. But but I think Sophia Vergara shows more cleavage than Vanessa Hudgens. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> and, and throughout this story, I think they changed her hair color as many times as they found a unique way of showing that cleavage. <laughs> I don't, did you catch that? Yes, yes. I kept, I she, kept thinking that my there was a printing error. <laughs> I thought that too at one point, but I mean, at one point as a kid, her hair is like purple, mm-hmm. and then it then it's orange, then blonde, then pink. I mean, there's a couple panels in here where she kind of looks like Gem from Gem and the Holograms, yep. <laughs> and then orange, and then white, and then we finally get the green. It's it's astounding. And you're right, you call that, I think it's on page four, the top panel on page four. She's got the reddish hair, she's got like a bronzed tan, so her skin looks yep. orange, and she's got the bluish lavender bikini. It definitely looks like Starfire. It looks like they're exactly. trying to do Starfire. I wonder, I wonder if that was one of, uh, one of the Dom's gimmicks for uh, oh, <laughs> making maybe. her a top star. I'll, I'll pass you off as a lookalike. There you go. <laughs> so... I went into this story not really caring that caring about the character. My first read through, I was like, "The story's dumb. It doesn't work for me. I don't like the art. I don't like the the character." And then I, well, I had to give it a second chance for the sake of this podcast. And on a second read through, all of the things I didn't like about it just clicked for me for some reason. Uh, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that you pointed out the whole thing about Chuck Austin's '90s period <laughs> as as an artist for Cherry Superleaf. Yeah. That makes so much more sense. So I liked the story. I can't, and it, this does what the secret origins are supposed to do is this makes me want to read more stories with this character. This makes me want to pick up a justice league international comic with her. Right. You know, if I had one complaint about the story though, it would be that it gets us right up to her begging asylum uh, with the global guardians and doesn't connect her to justice league international. That was, that was one little thing that after I read it was like, huh, but the cover says Secret Origins of Justice League International, and you don't quite get me to that point. Like, I, I loved the backstory. I appreciated the backstory. But how did we get from the Global Guardians to the Justice League? Throw that in, and I'll be a happy camper. Right, because the next story after this in the book is the Ice Maiden origin, with, which ends with Ice Maiden joining the Global Guardians and meeting Fire, or Green right. Flame, and the two of them together. But yeah, it's they both end with them... A year before they would be when they joined the the global or the whatever the Justice League International. Justice League, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. They do sort of skip that beat, but so your overall thoughts? Did you enjoy the story? 
I did. I, I did. It was it was goofy. It it wasn't maybe as goofy as uh, as one might expect from a Justice League International related mm-hmm. uh, story. But but in fairness, Justice League International wasn't always as goofy as people remember it. They had some dark and serious moments from time to time. Yeah, but it but it was just goofy enough to to sort of still pick up on that same sort of theme. Like I said, the art for me, I I do appreciate it. Um, but there were some inconsistencies. Uh, there was a few panels here and there where where somebody went a little a little heavy on the on the cross hatching after you know a page or two of no cross hatching, and then suddenly you know we're putting all kinds of lines on uh, on BB's butt. Yeah. <laughs> so so the the uh, the art I I can deal with. The story was was absolute fun. I, I just re- I really wish it would have connected that last dot over to Justice League International. I'm actually flipping through it again, and I'm trying to see if there is one page where we don't get a butt shot. <laughs> oh, okay, it's that, yeah, it's sort of during, well, the montage of her and her spy days on page five, but <laughs> we see everything but her. Yeah, so. She, she's skiing in a bikini, come on. There you go. <laughs> that more than makes up for no butt shot, Ryan. There you go, I know. <laughs> if you were to recommend some other stories with this character, like we said, it's a lot of it is to be found in the pages of Justice League and the various incarnations that came out of that. Yeah, there was um <laughs> there was like a two panel appearance in a uh, in a recent issue of of the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle that I covered on my blog. Mm. Um <laughs> but it was literally like a a throwaway she was there because another character had had a mother box mm-hmm. or had re- or had come into into contact with a mother box and it's like a quick two panel fire shows up and says, you know, you better be careful with that. And then disappears. So, (laughs) so I would not recommend blue beetle as your, as your, you know, gateway drug for, for more fire stories. I would probably say formerly known as the justice league. And I can't believe it's not the justice league. Those two revisits from the, uh, Giffen, DiMatteis and McGuire back, going back to those characters, uh, I guess now you could lo- almost look back at it and say it was the last hurrah. Uh-huh. But it, but those capture everything that was fun about those old Justice League International days. So I, I think I'd point to them. She 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 has an interesting relationship with uh, rooming with uh, Mary Marvel <laughs> in in those. It's good banter. It's got the Kevin Maguire art. So yeah, I think that would be my recommendation. If 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 someone's out there looking for for more fire go with formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. And for a more serious take on the character, I haven't read a lot of it. In fact, I've only read the first two issues, but the Checkmate series written by Greg Rucka, I know that she was a big part of that, um, yes. playing more into her espionage background. And that's a series that eventually I would like to read more of because I like Rucka as a writer, and it's him tackling spy stories, which is you know one of his many breads and butters. Um, yeah. But I was sort of turned off on it because it feels like a S.H.I.E.L.D.-type book, and S.H.I.E.L.D. feels very, like, that's Marvel's thing. Marvel does those type of things. The DC Universe doesn't need that type of book. But I could be wrong, and they they could be very good stories. I'm assuming that they are. So maybe. If anybody out there is listening to this, if you've read the Checkmate series, what did you think of it, and how was this character portrayed in it? Uh, Timmy, you got any final thoughts on Green Flame or Fire or the story in general? Don't judge a book by its cover, because I, I think you and I both had a, a similar reaction. We, we 
my my first pass through it was kind of the eh, and then it was looking back at it and knowing that you know <laughs> the art had the connection to an adult comic book <laughs> made it made it a lot more fun. And and like you said, you read it you read through the second time and it had a lot more fun with it the first time. So don't don't write the character off thinking she's just cheesecake because there's actually some some well written fire stories out there. All right, thank you very much. Tim Wallace, where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? More often than not, um, they can find me at Cord Industries. Uh, that's my Blue Beetle blog, cordindustries.blogspot.com. Um, from there, you can uh, find a few links to some of the other stuff I've been working on. I've, I recently started a Phantom blog. That's right now only about once a month, but that's the Phantom's Skull Cave. Uh, also at Blogspot, I contribute over at the Legion of Super Bloggers, like you mentioned earlier, and uh, making various podcast appearances. I'm also willing to do weddings and bar mitzvahs if anybody's interested. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm sure our listeners will keep you in mind for that last one. Um, no, seriously, thank you once again for being on the show. It's always great talking to you. It's always great to talk to you too, Ryan, and anytime you want me, you, you just let me know. Well, I know you're going to be coming back in the future for a Legion-specific <laughs> episode. but Okay. All right, folks, do not go away because we're going to take a promo break, but when we come back, we're going to have one more Secret Origin story this episode. See you in a minute. Hi, friends. It's your old pal, Adam Worth. You may remember me from podcasts like Comic Book Fight Club, The Quantum Cast, and the thousands of other shows I somehow get roped into making guest appearances on. The podcasting world has been very good to me, and I feel it's about time that I give back. So coming this spring, I'll be helping to make the world a better place with my new show, The Bad Advice Show. Join me and a few <clears throat> choice panelists as we answer your questions on life, love, relationships, history, life hacks, and politics. Really, whatever topics you feel you would like to get my valued opinion on. So hop on the advice train as we make the world a better place coming this spring to an internet streaming device near you. To have your questions answered on The Bad Advice Show, send us an email at thebadadviceshow.com at yahoo.com that's the bad advice show at yahoo.com and remember kids if you want to remain anonymous don't tell me your name elsa do you want to build a snowman come on let's go and play i never see you anymore come out the door like you've gone away we used to be best buddies and now we're not i wish you would tell me why do you want to build a snowman it doesn't have to Someday you'll pay the 
we are back for our third and final story this episode, The Origin of Ice Maiden. As we'll see, the story begins in the frigid, snow-capped mountains of Norway, so naturally I sought out a guest who lives in Australia, which is about (laughs) as far away from Norway as it gets. You know him as one of the hosts of the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, the infinitely patient Paul Hicks. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, Ryan. Great to be here. So are you still waiting? I mean, they haven't announced Doom Patrol Rebirth, have they? Um, I think we're just doomed to wait forever. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that Doom Patrol is the comic that all the creators love to do and the editors won't let them do. That seems to be the common standard. So we keep waiting. That's a tough one to wait for because it just seems like it's so rife with potential especially in i mean we we seem to be in this grim dark era of comics and i think doom patrol in particular lends itself to that sort of melodramatic weepy uh, i mean i don't well it is it is sort of an angsty book it's it's the sort of emo goth version of the team book which i like it has its place for that and you can tell uh upsetting stories with the group but <laughs> Well, that's one of the things we like about the Doom Patrol is there's so many different areas of the Doom Patrol to talk about. So if you really want to do a, you know, a complete fast story, you can find one of those. Yeah. If you want to do a parody, you can find one of those. If you want to do straightforward, you know, 60s heroics, you can do that. And, uh, you know, there's something for everyone in Doom Patrol stories. There's very serious ones, very dark ones, very heavy ones. There's also just ridiculous ones. And, you know, it's it's a great showcase for different eras of DC, really. Yeah, yeah, it is. Do you have a particularly favorite era or a favorite incarnation of the group of the team? I have a real soft spot for the Graham Morrison one because that's where I really came to love the team. Uh, but I've followed them through a lot of iterations. I think there's one that's really underrated, and that's the um, John Arcudi run with, uh, I think he had a Malaysian artist called Tang N. Hewitt on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was like really creative and really different and but it had the through line of um you know cliff steel robot man throughout it all but yeah i thought that was a very unusual run at the time and i think it it holds up pretty well yeah doug zavisha talked about that a little bit when he was on for the secret origin of the doom patrol that was he i think he had some good things to say about that era yeah and i love doug thank goodness it was him who got that gig otherwise i'd have to come after you <laughs> and yeah, the thing was i probably i i think i only found out about your show the week that i was recording that one with doug so i was like oh they've already got a podcast well doug is pretty knowledgeable and i already promised him that episode but <laughs> yeah so. enough doom patrol talk for the moment Paul and I are talking about the Justice League International's resident snow bunny, Ice, who at the time of this story was called Ice Maiden. Her first appearance was in Super Friends issue 9, the issue that introduced the first incarnation of the Global Guardians. However, that series, based on the TV show, isn't considered in continuity, so her first real appearance in the DC Universe is probably Infinity Incorporated issue 32. That, however, I'm still not sure about. The character called Ice Maiden appeared in half a dozen issues of Infinity Incorporated, serving as part of the Global Guardians, but it might not always have been the same one. Her appearance and identity is a little questionable, since there are two different Ice Maidens. The ice that we're focusing on is Tora Olaf's daughter, a princess of a magical group of Norwegians known as the Ice People. She came to popular attention in Justice League International issue 12 as a member of the newly disbanded Global Guardians. She and Green Flame, better known as Fire, ended up joining the Justice League, where Ice remained a constant for nearly 10 years. 
never really stepping out on her own, Ice was a regular fixture in Justice League International, then Justice League America, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, until eventually she was killed in Justice League Task Force, issue 14, in 1994. After Tora died, a second Ice Maiden named Sigrid joined the team, claiming to be the first Ice Maiden from the Global Guardians. This part is confusing to me, and I don't really care about it right now. Anyway, Just ignore it. Exactly. Anyway, the good news is Tora Olaf's daughter was resurrected in 2007 in the pages of Birds of Prey. During the events of Blackest Night, she briefly became a Black Lantern and then a White Lantern, and then she and several of her co-stars from the JLI starred in the maxi-series Justice League Generation Lost during the Brightest Day era. So, Paul, how did you discover Ice, or Ice Maiden, and are you a fan of the character? I am a fan of the character, and I encountered her in Justice League issue 12, which is probably where most people did as she joined you know, the Justice League with Guy Gardner and Martian Manhunter and Booster Gold and Blue Beetle. And yeah, she brought a good dynamic to the team, and she's the sort of character who, who is pretty much a foil for other characters. Um, in this case, she did the most uh, work on fire, giving her a partner and, uh, you know, uh, a comrade. And also Guy Gardner, you know, the perpetual love interest for Guy Gardner is the thing that keeps going and going. It's continued into the New 52, despite having no reason for it to be there, given <laughs> what they never built there. Right. So, yeah, back in Justice League, that's where I found out about her and uh, sort of followed her up until they started doing silly things with her, like killing her. <laughs> right. I liked that she grew fond of Guy during the you know the period of time where he basically had brain damage and he was kind <laughs> of like the, the silly, innocent guy. And then everybody's like, that's, that's not who Guy Gardner is. Don't get attracted <laughs> to that guy. And when he turned into his normal kind of asshole self... She was like, oh, this is awful, but she still kind of had that uh, that emotional connection to him. Uh, I went back and I, I was trying to think, and the first time I saw her actually was one of the first DC books that I was reading in the early 90s was the Death of Superman trade paperback. Because that, that was my first impression of the Justice League International cast. And I was, I was like, who is this woman? She, I was like, okay, she's ice, she's got ice powers, I guess. I kind of liked her look. Um, but I didn't think that much of her until the moment when Doomsday like almost kills Blue Beetle and Maxima is ready to go off and fight Doomsday. Maxima is much tougher, and and Ice basically tells her, "No, you need to take Blue Beetle to the hospital or he'll die. I'll go fight Doomsday." And you realize that Ice has no chance of stopping Doomsday. Uh, she's basically she would be sacrificing herself. Maxima could actually hold Doomsday back until Superman gets there. But she's making the choice to basically save Blue Beetle's life instead. And I thought that was a really cool character moment. Because the next time we see Ice, she's being thrown through a house. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a great story for her. Yeah. Okay, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Ice Maiden? I am. So, The Secret Origin of Ice Maiden. It's written by Jared Jones with art by Jim Valentino from the Image Original Crowd and Eduardo Barreto um, does the inks and he completely overwrites everything Valentino's doing, I'd say. Uh, lettered by Tob Klein, coloured by Tom Zuko and it's edited by Mark Wade. 
So, a helicopter travels over the snowy peaks of Norway. The Norwegian pilot Gustav talks to Rod, a superhuman tracker who has been hired by the Deputy Secretary of the Foreign Ministry and talks about the legends of the ice folk who live in the mountains. After a sudden gust of cold air that disrupts their flight, they head down to the snow on a clearing. A woman in blue and white watches as the chopper lands on the mountain, as the readers in turn watch her ass, and the story title 200 Years of Solitude appears. As Rod prepares to farewell Gustav, we discover that his mission is to place Norwegian superhero in the Global Guardians. Rod is startled by the sight of the young lady emerging from an ice cave, which is engraved with the words The Secret Origin of Ice Maiden, to give us two titles. Rod greets her in Norwegian and asks if she lives around here. She replies in an old Norwegian Holberg dialect that this is her father's fiefdom and that warm bodies are forbidden. Her father suddenly appears, flanked by snarling polar bears, which John Peters would love, <laughs> and asks who dares invade the threshold of the ice palace. And he mentions a broken compact and the need for answering to the lord of the ice folk. He rebukes Tora, but she replies that she is tired of the ice palace and identifies herself as warm body curious. The conversation deteriorates and Rod's cigarette lighter is blasted out of his hand by the Lord of the Ice Folk and picked up by Tora. As Rod mentions contacting the lady who sent him, the Lord of the Ice Folk freezes the two intruders in solid ice crystal blocks and then he has his bears take them inside on a sled. Over dinner with her mum, Tora discusses her desire to know more of the warm bodies. Tora's mum has completely bought into the whole ice folk patriarchy and tells her not to be foolish. Tora leaves the table despite her mum's protests that her ptarmigan freeze is getting warm. I looked up ptarmigan. It's like a little uh, game bird, like a grouse. Uh Mm. (laughs) Tora visits the intruder storage room and unfreezes Rod with his magical cigarette lighter, which does it in about two seconds. And Rod is immediately up for a casual chat rather than freezing after being frozen. And he agrees that she should show him her magic if he teaches her the ways of 80s materialism. Tora starts to thaw out Gustav, but the Lord of the Ice Folk bursts in and seeks an angry polar bear on them. Tora blocks it with an ice wall she creates, but he brandishes his ice sword. Suddenly, Gustav takes a Polaroid of the Lord of the Ice Folk, which stops him in his tracks. Seeing the developed picture, he is astounded by the warm body's magic and has to re-evaluate his worldview. Rod semi-threatens the Lord of the Ice Folk, but proposes a magic exchange program with Tora leaving with him to kick it off. Like any father with strong cultural beliefs, the Lord of the Ice Folk lets his daughter leave with two strange men. (laughs) We cut to the fictional DC city of Paris, where Rod reluctantly hands her to the new teammates, the Global Guardians. A woman dressed in green flame motif costume steps forward and greets her. And the end. Yes, and as the story began with a butt shot of ice, it ends with a butt shot of fire. <laughs> yeah, uh, did you notice that she has a cloak with her, but she drops it so we can see her butt then in that yes. shot? Yes. <laughs> Before uh, wrapping it around her shoulders in the next scene. And both butt shots are sort of half in the shadow? Yeah. Um, so speaking of the art... The credits for this on the on the credit page kind of confused me because it's written Valentino and Eduardo Barreto as the artists. It doesn't say Jim Valentino. And the way I was used to reading it, I was like, well, I've heard of Eduardo Barreto. Does he have a brother named Valentino? Like, wait, wait, who is that? And then I looked at it, I was like, oh, Jim Valentino. Why doesn't it say yeah. his name? And of course, yes, Jim Valentino, one of the original image guys who created Shadowhawk, According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this issue is Jim Valentino's first work at one of the big two publishers and his only work for DC. 
Um, wow. Now, I mean, that might just go from like the 80s and 90s. I don't know if he's done something since, but... Uh, uh, yeah, well, the main character, Rod, he looks like a Eduardo Barreto character through and through. He does. I definitely see a lot of Eduardo Barreto in this. And, I mean, maybe uh, if this was really early in Jim Valentino's career, it might have been a really rough, and he, Barreto might have needed to take a heavier hand in the inking. But the art isn't phoned in. It's it's quite well done for no, most of it. Yeah, it really is good. I like it. I find the weakest part is where they walk through the uh, the ice palace because you, it's unpopulated. You never see any people in there. You it looks like a spare part of the fortress of solitude rather exactly, than yeah. a real place. Yeah, are the are the magical ice people? Is it just one family? <laughs> I don't get a sense of. <laughs> We'd see three of them. <laughs> so, what did you think of the story as a whole? It's it's serviceable. <laughs> You know, it, it's kind of nice. It's not a waste of a, a read. Um, I don't really know as a secret origin if it adds anything to the character. There's some weird things in that uh, Rod is perpetually mentioning products like Ray-Bans and Marantz and things like that. And mm-hmm. that really seems to get Ice's uh, motor going as far as wanting to find out more. There's a little bit of, like, page nine, there's a panel there that is very innuendo-esque because she's bending over and he's standing behind her and he says, oh, baby, the magic I could show you. This is, I think it's a pretty sexually charged story. Like, without being really super overt, I mean, there's, okay, your main character is named Rod, and he's yeah. going to find this ice princess or this, you know, who dresses like a snow bunny from, you know, a ski lodge or the Playboy Mansion or something. Uh, right on the first page, in like the third panel, he's saying, I thought I'd be in Oslo eating herring and checking out the girls or vice. And he's kind of cut off by the wind gust. He was going to say or vice versa. <laughs> Okay, they let that one go through. Yeah. um, There are lines like that when he's checking her out from behind, and it's like, yeah, this. I think it is definitely a sexually charged story. But it's also. And her whole thing is to be with the warm bodies. Exactly, the reference to the warm bodies throughout. It's okay, we're, we're painting a picture definitely with this language. But it's also. And he, he says it too. He's like, I, I didn't think I was coming here to check into a fairy tale. And that's sort of what this is. You know, a magical girl trapped by her, you know, wicked father in this old custom who's going to be rescued by this guy with a Zippo lighter. And which... the fact that as soon as he unfreezes, his first words are uh, hi. And it's like <laughs> Joey from Friends. <laughs> How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> yeah, of course. Like... Really, a pocket lighter that's going to take him out of this ice block? Like, it would take like three days. <laughs> yeah. But one weakness in the art is I don't think um, Eduardo Barreto or Jim Valentino are particularly great at drawing polar bears. They look a little <laughs> bit like felines at times. Yeah, it kind of does look like a fat tiger, <laughs> which, by the way, was my nickname in college. <laughs> I like the uh, I like your reference when uh, you see that, that John Peters would have liked the story. A crazy old man with a red cape surrounded by polar bears. Definitely <laughs> what we could have gotten from a Superman movie in the 90s. Yeah. It turns on a dime, though, with, I think, with, um, you know, the father seeing a, uh, a Polaroid and that being the impetus for him to let her go. That seems very, um, a bit weak. And then just because we need to up the stakes... Rod is like, yeah, you better let your daughter come with us or we'll blow up your castle with nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, if like, we have pol- Polaroids, imagine what we can do with our weapons. 
It's like we will we'll nuke your whole magical kingdom if you don't give us your impressionable, possibly teenage daughter. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a silly story, but there are a lot of elements about it that I really liked. Um, yeah, it's not one of the boring ones, is it? No, it's not. It's not at all. I think it, it's a little over the top at points. It's a little not subtle, but uh, <laughs> it's fun. It was it was entertaining. I enjoyed this read for a character that I didn't know a whole lot about, and I'm not sure I know a whole lot more other than okay, she was from the particularly sheltered life before she goes out and joins a super team full of you know international heroes yeah Um, just want to point out uh tasmanian devil australian hanging with all the europeans for some reason (laughs) your resident hero (laughs) our only one apparently (laughs) yeah um but it's interesting because as he uh palms her off to the global guardians he said um I'm no good for you, honey. My motor runs too hot. And, you know, suggesting that she needs someone more sedate. And, of course, she goes immediately for Guy Gardner. (laughs) Yeah. And, yeah, he definitely, when he's at the end between fire and ice, sort of like, maybe I should have hung around for a little bit longer. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't ask you about this when we started, but uh, do you have any thoughts on this cover? There's something about it just reminds me of a color form uh, page. (laughs) Like the, it's got this standard background, and the characters just look like they've been plonked over each other as little vinyl pieces. <laughs> How do you feel about it? It's sort of funny because I know this is part of a piece with issues 34 and 35. So I think of it as a three part wide screenshot with nine heroes on it. A triptych, yeah. Yeah, and when you look at it that way, I think it's pretty cool. Individually, each one of the covers is sort of. I think this is the weakest of the three. Yeah, but there's a disconnect between the characters and the background, don't you feel? Yes, I do. It seems like the back, and maybe, maybe because of the way uh, Ordway was laying it out, he really sort of just like constructed the background and everything, and then constructed the characters separately, individually, and place and just drew them over. Um, yeah. I definitely, I no, I see exactly what you're talking about. It kind of looks like there's sticker overlays that just got placed on top of the, uh, on top of a cityscape. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, and they forgot to put a cleavage on Mister Miracle. <laughs> yes, that's the one thing missing. <laughs> and yeah, Ice looks a little bit. I, th- I mean, obviously, Ordway's a great artist. Ty Templeton is inking this, and it, it, it's great. I think Mister Miracle looks good. I think Green Flame looks good. Ice, I don't know if it's her hair or something. She just looks a little bit bored or sleepy. <laughs> yes. Yes, as she uh, creates a little ice sled out into the air. Yeah. But any other thoughts about this story? I've got some thoughts about ice in general. Yeah. Uh, I, her death was incredibly wrong-headed at the time, and it certainly turned me off the titles. The When that happened in Justice League, I sort of... Uh, I gave up on them, and I never kept those issues in my collection. I sort of discarded it. And um, interesting, Mark Wade on uh, the Women's in Refrigerators uh-huh. site, he said, uh, I'm responsible for the death of ice. My call, my worst mistake in comics, my biggest regret. I remember hearing myself ask the editor, who's the JLA whose death would evoke the most fierce gut reaction from readers? What a dope, mea culpa. But I've learned my lesson. In fact, one of the only reasons I still hang on to The Flash is because I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the moment I walk, the next guy's going to drop a safe on Linda Park's head because my last voucher's been paid. (laughs) Actually, what happened was worse. Wally and Linda had kids. (laughs) (laughs) The death knell for many a superhero. Yeah. 
one of the things about Ice being dead at this time is she was dead dead, like it wasn't pretend. So she appeared in stories as a ghost, um, JLA Annual Number 2. Um, and she really was the MacGuffin in the Birds of Prey story, which was a crossover with The Secret Six, where the, she was the object that everyone was fighting over. And um, they redid her origin in Justice League Generation Lost, um, which is sort of a sequel to JLI written by Judd Winnick. Um, came around around the time of uh, Brightest Day. And in that reimagining of her story, um, she's kind of part of a you know dodgy, stereotypical nomadic uh, gypsy group whose father was trying to use her power to uh, you know further their cause and in pushing her too far he she actually uh, killed him in getting overstressed and that was in uh, Justice League Generation Lost number 12 which had a fantastic alternate cover by Kevin Maguire yeah. of uh, ice spraying ice everywhere but i mean quite often they're tempted to use her as the calm soft-spoken character who's incredibly powerful when pushed and you know you see that happen in justice league and secret six and uh generation lost and um she's also come back in the new 52 with her relationship with guy still intact even though there's none of the groundwork to justify that in the new 52 well Uh, i think when they launched new 52 i think justice league international was one of the most poorly conceived books because that is a team and kind of a a concept that really demands a lot of history within the universe, and they hadn't earned that because they hadn't explained the new history. Yeah, so the creators just, seemed desperate to keep the things they were attached to, right? Um, without any effort to recreate it or earn it. Yeah, they they just threw out a bunch of books and it's like, well, people understand that Birds of Prey is a book, so we're going to create a new Fifty Two Birds of Prey book. Never mind that the characters don't know each other. They don't have that shared history anymore. And it was the same thing with Justice League International. And it's, yeah, why are Guy Gardner and Ice together? Do they have that history? You haven't explained that. And it's, so. Did you, I mean, you said that you, you stopped reading the Justice League books after Ice was killed off in in uh, Task Force. So did you ever read anything with her replacement, uh, Seagrid? No, I've completely missed that. So, I mean, it, it was easy to drop in because they were terrible as well. So. <laughs> I didn't either. What, from what I knew of it is she came in, she had a similar look at first, and then they kind of revamped her, but she kind of came in and had uh, eventually after after she fought fire, because that's what happens in superhero books when you you know introduce two people, they have to fight first, and then they become friends. It <laughs> seems like they kind of had a very similar relationship, which makes me wonder if internally, after she was killed off, they didn't think... Uh, maybe that was a mistake. Let's introduce a new one and basically do the same thing. So we can yeah, we can undo her death without undoing it. Yeah, I mean, she brings a really good dynamic to that team, which um, I think it was missed at the time. But, I mean, they were sticking Booster Gold in armor as well, so they didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, well... Oh, uh, one thing I've heard is that uh, Ice is currently appearing in Justice League 3001, at least for the next couple of months. And then, so she's, she's uh, you know, passed through into the future and come back as a very powerful character there. So Very cool. But I think I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Recommended readings? I mean, if, if our readers wanted to find out more about this character, what would you say? Um, I'd say the Birds of Prey story is a good story that features her. It's not a particularly good ice story. Um, and somewhere along the line, she had a catch-up with fire in the pages of Checkmate, I believe, when Greg Rucker was writing that, and that's that's pretty good. 
But uh, you can't go past Justice League and uh, Justice League International, the classic uh, Giffen, Di Matteis and uh, Maguire run. That's that's where the gold is with this character. And, you know, that's where her character was defined and built and, uh, you know, and everything else has been sort of an echo of that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. you got to check that out. Um, and then, yeah, the, I mean, the death of Superman has one of my favorite ice moments Clearly, she's not a big player in that story, but I, I definitely like that moment when she tells Ma- she turns Maxima around to save Blue Beetle. Yeah, the Jurgens run is very good on Justice League, and uh, he did good things with her yeah. uh, until he, he was off the book. All right, well, Paul, thank you very much for being on this episode of Secret Origins Podcast. We already talked about it a little bit at the top, but if people want to hear more from you, what podcast should they be listening to? Uh, I've got a podcast called Waiting for Doom, which I do with Mike, which is all about uh, what we do while we're waiting for the Doom Patrol to come back. So we basically talk about different areas of the Doom Patrol. And um, I'm also on Twitter at reading underscore Hicks, which is H-I-X. And other than that, not, not very much online presence. Well, your show is great. I'm a big fan of Waiting for Doom. It's really fun. I love the the production value and the technical details you throw into it. You guys are hilarious when you're talking about the, the Doom Patrol fun show i highly recommend it to everybody and one more time thank you very much for being on the show i'll have to have you back in the future absolute pleasure before getting to listener feedback i need to address the doom patrol shaped elephant in the room back when paul and i recorded the ice maiden segment he was waiting for a doom that might never return Now, it turns out he only has to wait until September. Last week, DC announced a new Mature Readers imprint called Young Animal that will include four new titles, including, you guessed it, Cave Carson. No, 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 you probably wouldn't have guessed that. The flagship series of Young Animal is Doom Patrol, written by Gerard Way and illustrated by Nick Darrington. Way, who is serving as the creative director for all four Young Animal books, is the writer of Umbrella Academy for Dark Horse Comics, as well as the lead singer of the rock band My Chemical Romance. Hmm. Why does that sound familiar? Did... Did somebody play a My Chemical Romance song at the end of the Doom Patrol episode of Secret Origins Podcast? Who was responsible for that? Was it Rob Kelly? Or Chris Franklin? Oh, wait! It was me! I did that! You people complained that I played the My Chemical Romance version of Under Pressure instead of the Queen version, while Freddie Mercury ain't writing the Doom Patrol. Never question my music selection again, or I will have Kelly Clarkson writing a new Power Girl comic. I can do that. I have that power. Apparently. Now, who's on Twitter? Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from The 108th Sage, Alan Middleton, Ange, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Chad Bokelman, Christoph Richter, Dan at Dinosaur Number 1, Danilo Santiago, David Gutierrez, Diabolo Frank, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Jim Bao, JLI Podcast, Keith G. Baker, Oscar Blue Devil, Radio vs. the Martians, Richard Field, Robert Lewis, Silver and Gold Podcast, Sin, Trekker Talk, and Willie Yarbrough. New Facebook likes and shares came from Al Sedano, Anthony Durso, Bradley Null, Brian Green, 
Bruce Weaver, Chad Bokelman, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Dale Dale, Fernando Roca, Gabriel Kisick, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Igor Glishkin, Jimmy McGlinchey, Kal-El Kamandi, Keith G. Baker, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Reginald Musgrave, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Steve Leach, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, and Van Z. On the Facebook post for episode 32, Igor Glushkin said, The art in this issue stands out as the best I've seen from this series. And Dale Dale said, I agree, Black Canary has never looked better. I've loved this book since I was 15. Van Z said, I guess this was a good episode, you know, if you like good hosts and a good story, but other than that, it was okay. Moving on to the website comments, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You'll remember last episode featured five different guests, all recorded separately. That episode was, as the French say, a real bitch to edit. Thankfully, my intensive efforts did not go unnoticed, as a ton of people left me comments about how well edited and assembled the show sounded. So, thank you for mentioning that, because I was really worried about how the final product would sound when I was cutting and arranging samples from all of those different sources, but I think the show worked, and from the sounds of things, it did. What else were people saying about the episode? Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast and the Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe said, Secret Origins 32 was a really fun comic and so was the episode. It's too bad we never got any more JLA adventures from this writing and art team. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Multiple contributors was a great way to approach this story. I'm imagining everyone had their own logo. That would have been cool and fun. You know, given another week, Martin, maybe I could have done something with that. Talking about the story, Martin said that the post-crisis origin of the Justice League was nice, but mostly unnecessary. However, he adds, This does have one thing over the original. No sodding snapper car, daddy-o. How the heck did this supposed reader identification figure stick with the team for years? Surely readers weren't writing in praising him. I don't remember the JLA mailroom being awash with adoring epistles. Maybe that's why they kept him around? To sort the post? Good question. Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast said, It reassures me in a slightly unsettling way that Frank's favorite era of the Justice League is the Grant Morrison era, too. Or maybe it's just yet another signal heralding my pending dementia. Oh yeah, happy birthday, Chad. Jeff Nettleton said, The team was an interesting choice, with Peter David's scripting, which helped carry forward the then-current tone of Justice League International, while still staying true to the serious nature of the original story. Eric Shanower was an interesting choice for artist. He does a fine job and was able to do the facial work that made Justice League International a hit. Also, I like the fact that he isn't part of the steroid crowd and gives the heroes impressive, but realistic, looks. I agree that I would have loved to see more Peter David writing the Justice League titles of this period. David was still building a name as a writer after being turned down because he was in sales at Marvel. He did a ton of Star Trek for DC, though not without problems from a specific individual at Paramount's licensing office. He handled the Justice League as well as he did the Star Trek characters. Then Jeff R. said, My first JLA story was issue 161. I joined the book at the same time Zatanna did. I have a Whitman reprint of that issue. I'm going to cover it on Power of Fishnets podcast someday, probably like two years from now. Uh, Jeff continued, 
Superman continuity was really messed up at this time, wasn't it? I mean, Man of Steel was set, what, five or ten years in the past? Superman had to be the first of the modern age superheroes to appear, but the regular superbooks weren't in the past, so the guy had to have been around in Metropolis rescuing cats for years, because none of his villains had debuted yet except for Luther. At least in the case of Wonder Woman, there's not any kind of time warp of this kind going on, except with regard to Wonder Girl. Honestly, there's no good way to square the circle on this story, and using Black Canary is probably as good an option as any. The only other real choice would have been to launch a brand new continuity implant character here. And honestly, Miss America would have been basically that. And that could have gone really, really wrong. You did name drop Triumph in the beginning of the show, after all. Jeff Nettleton responded to the other Jeff, It's part of the reason I say they should have just gone full-on reboot after Crisis. As soon as they decided to reboot Superman from square one, you'd think someone would realize that it was going to create a snowball effect. Then again, I suspect they were still hedging their bets when they launched the Burn revamp, in case the audience didn't react well to the changes. Easier to reboot one character and then pull back, rather an entire line of books. Well, a lesson you'd have thought DC had learned by the time the New 52 came around, but they still cheated themselves by not rebooting Batman and Green Lantern, because their all-star writers were still two years away from completing their runs. Hello. Paul Hicks from Waiting Till September for Doom podcast said, I'm glad JLA Year One got a mention. That's a book that deserves more attention, don't you think? Why, yes, Paul, I do think JLA Year One deserves more attention. In fact, I have a feeling it's going to get a lot more attention from certain podcasts in a couple of weeks from now. Jimmy McGlinchey said, Although I never collected the Secret Origins series, I did read the story as it was included in an early 1990s trade paperback. While a lot of the stories in the trade paperback are reprints from the Secret Origins series and issue 6 of the Man of Steel miniseries, there is an original Secret Origin tale of Batman by Denny O'Neill and Dick Giordano. It's a nice tale and incorporates elements of Frank Miller's Year One, Sam Hamm's Blind Justice, specifically bringing Henri Ducard as a teacher of the young Wayne, and O'Neill's shaman story from Legends of the Dark Knight. While it is a Batman origin story and we all know it, I'm curious if you are going to cover this in your podcast. Yes, Jimmy, I am, and that is all I can say about it right now. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I don't have this particular issue, a hole in my collection, so I had to follow along mentally. Although there does seem to be some cosmic karma as I just reread the Wade Kitson JLA Year One, which seemed to glean some themes from this story. As for the JLA, I hopped on board in the Bates-Dillon era, picking up issues whenever I saw the cover, from Zatanna joining, to Mr. Terrific's death, to Black Lightning turning down membership. I was there whenever I saw one and had 40 cents in my pocket. That'll always be the ideal that other teams need to live up to. Good philosophy, man. Siskoid from Lonely Hearts and First Strike, the Invasion podcast, said... I forgot just how nice Shanoar's art was in this issue, and while I'm perfectly okay with him not liking superhero comics, it's not for everyone, it kind of makes me sad he wasn't the one drawing Year One instead of Barry Kitson. My first comic was Justice League of America 217, which coincidentally uses a similar Let's Split Up format, as did the old JSA and JLA stories. It's dear to my heart. You know, it's funny that that was Siskoid's first issue, and I just found out about it now. About a week ago, the wife and I are in Walmart. She's shopping for 
something. Uh, and I walk over to the toy aisle because I'm a grown man. Anyway, as we're leaving, I see this shelf of weird canvas art prints, and a lot of them are Superman and Batman related because of the new movie. The prints are small, like 6 inches by 4, canvas on pretty thin wooden frames, but they're all comic book covers, which is awesome. Anyway, a lot of them are newer Batman and Superman images from the last 10 years or so, but one of them was the cover to Justice League of America issue 217, the same issue that Siskoid said was his first issue. Pretty cool, huh? So yeah, I got that print. It was like $4, and I hung it up above my desk, replacing what had been a 2012 calendar featuring art from the original Marvel Star Wars comics. Anyway, that was a pleasant little anecdote, so let's follow it up with a comment by Diablo Frank. Frank started by justifying the brevity of his answers on the last episode as a favor to me because Frank knows what it's like to edit an episode like that. Thank you, Frank. He then expanded on his favorite JLA writers, artists, and runs. It should come as a surprise to no one, Frank says, that my interest in the League is largely dependent on the inclusion of the Manhunter from Mars. Damn anyone's counter-arguments. You can have all six of the seven founding members on a team. But for me, the difference between the Super Friends and the Justice League is John Jones. None of the Leagues since his departure feel legitimate to me. He may not have really served on every lineup, but no single character represents the League as much as he. Frank continues, I feel you at least need Wonder Woman to be a founding member of the JLA for the character's sake, since she lost so much esteem and history coming out of Crisis. Wonder Woman needed and benefited from George Perez's attention in 1987, but in the long view, she lost so much weight as a character that has never been restored. Conversely, I think Black Canary improved upon Wonder Woman as a founder post-crisis, by establishing a connection to the JSA as part of the legacy, rather than two versions of the same character operating on both teams, but different Earths. Dinah Drake slash Lance is one of the few high-profile DC heroines who isn't a female version of a pre-existing and dominant male hero, so she needs the elevation, and DC needs the girl power. In my headcanon, I make the Year One team the base-level league that are the closest and work the most missions, while the Trinity remain available for when Despero shows up. The Irredeemable Shag from Who's Who and Justice League International podcast said, Ryan, obviously taking his meds, finally agreed with my assessment that the JSA is better without Superman and Batman. It's my turn to return the compliment. I agree with Ryan, the classic JLA is better with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Then Shag heaped a ton of praise on the episode and the guests and on me, all of which seemed mighty suspicious. So obviously Shag ends his letter with, What I'm kind of saying, Ryan, is you're unlikely to top this effort. You've peaked. Really, it's all downhill from here, pal. Sorry, your moment in the sun is about over. Have fun sitting on your porch, getting old, remembering the good old days when you were relevant. No chance, Shag. I got 20 more episodes before I'm through, and when I'm done, I'ma burn this network down around me. But on a happier note, FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold podcast said, My first exposure to the Justice League was JLI. When I read this when it was first published, I thought it was weird that the big three were excluded, but I got it. You'll be able to hear Jason, by the way, on the next episode of this podcast, when we cover the origin of Captain Adam. And finally, Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics Blog said, Now that I think about it, why couldn't they have used Power Girl instead of Wonder Woman? 
she was getting a revamped origin anyway. She could have served as a replacement for both Wonder Woman and Superman, especially if they had nixed her Atlantean origin. Or kept it and given Aquaman somebody who could talk to that wasn't a damn fish. Huh. That would have been an interesting retcon, too. I also like Shag's idea of making Power Girl more or less the Superboy that inspires the Legion of Superheroes. Either way, I think we can all agree that Power Girl's connection to Atlantis is a stupid idea. That is it for the comments, but I did get a very nice, very thoughtful email from Trevor Williams. I'm not going to read it, but I got it, and it was very nice to receive. So thank you, Trevor. Uh, and yeah, that's it. Oh, one last thing before I go. There was another Justice League book I forgot to recommend last time, but it is one of my favorites. It's Justice League Liberty and Justice, written by Paul Dini and painted by Alex Ross. Dini and Ross did a series of oversized books, like the size of the old Treasury editions, fully painted. They did one for Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Captain Marvel, and then they did one for the Justice League. What I love about the story is the team faces a threat to the world that's not supervillains. It's not something that they can super punch their way out of, but they have to work together, and they need help. It starts with the original seven members from the pre-crisis team, but then they end up bringing the Atom in, who has an MVP moment, and then others, and we see cameos by Green Arrow and Black Canary, Hawkman and Hawkgirl, Elongated Man and Plastic Man, pretty much anybody who was on the Justice League at that time, except, you know, for Firestorm. Pick it up if you can, JLA Liberty and Justice, or you can get it collected along with the other stories that Deanie and Ross did together in one collection called, appropriately, the world's greatest superheroes. And that is going to be all for this episode. I want to thank my guests, David Gutierrez, Tim Wallace, and Paul Hicks for their appearances on this show. I want to thank everyone who left a comment or promoted the show on social media. And I want to thank you for listening. Next episode, Captain Adam, Rocket Red, and the Green Lantern called Nort. Three new stories, four brand new guests. Now... Let's hear some more My Chemical Romance. Oh, alright, you can have Queen. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Um, my friend James, whose house I'm recording in, is a cop, and he he's told me he was listening to uh, "Give Me Those Star Wars," and he's been started listening to Secret Origins. So he is often listening to you as he walks through crime scenes and things like that. So. <laughs> that 
that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> that's that's the really the goal that I set out for myself when I started it. <laughs> yeah. All right. 